This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This is the 50th episode that we've recorded since we started on this journey a little over a year ago. And I just want to point out that on this auspicious occasion, at least with regards to the date on which we are recording, the price of Bitcoin surged through $66,000 to hit a new all-time high. The trigger for that rally was the green light given earlier this week to a new Bitcoin exchange traded fund. Demand for the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF was extremely strong. Now, that has validated a theory that there was a lot of pent-up demand from investors who were seeking exposure to Bitcoin, but who wanted to do so through traditional brokerage accounts. And in response, the spot market has soared. But this price action really just puts a monetary marker on a much wider story about what is starting to look like a crypto moment. There's a swirling maelstrom of speculation and innovation occurring in non-fungible tokens, decentralized finance, and other corners of the crypto ecosystem. Regulators are struggling to keep up. A new vision for a decentralized economy is starting to take root. So it's fitting, I think, that on this day, not only commemorating our 50th episode, but also marking history in crypto markets, our guest is someone who has been along for much of the ride. Balaji Srinivasan is a serial entrepreneur, an investor, and an influential essayist. He is a former CTO of Coinbase, a former general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and the founder of 21.co, Earn.com, and a variety of other startups. His eclectic interests range from genetics to finance to political history to the future of journalism. He was recognized by Coindesk last year in our most influential series as much for his prescient warnings about COVID-19 as for mobilizing the crypto community to respond to it and his insights into the direction of the technology more generally. And more recently, he has become a somewhat controversial critic of media organizations and an advocate for a new decentralized model of truth, which I know he's going to want to talk about today. But before we bring Balaji in for this special OG episode, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So, um, yeah, nice timing to get uh, Bitcoin <laughs> up through $66,000 record high on our 50th anniversary. I think obviously that was the major factor here. Uh, no, clearly, but, yes. But, uh, seriously, seriously, this ETF, like, you know, I, I, my column this week is, is actually just pointing out that the ETF, uh, the futures-based ETF that was essentially approved by the SEC is obviously proving wonderful news for investors in the spot market, but it's a terrible idea for investors in that ETF itself. And it's all to do with this thing, a concept called contango, which is, it sounds like to me like a, a yoga position or something, but it's uh, <laughs> the other one's backwardation. It's contango or backwardation, but either way, the two of them, uh, create these problems in terms of the pricing. And there's actually an enormous cost that comes to bear with, with running an ETF like this. And so it just seems crazy that 
uh, it almost feels like this thing was done for pure regulatory hack reasons rather than truly creating something that's going to be valuable and useful to investors. I don't know how that's going to shake out in the long run, but it's, it's just a strange game. And we've had these two big proposals, of course, for a new regulatory. Yeah, system. that's right. Speaking of regulators. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, mean, I think that things we've been talking about for even a while on the show, you know, ETFs, other things are, are starting to emerge, maybe not in the ways any of us foresaw, because I take your point. I think that, that with, with the lack of regulatory clarity in some spaces, there is this contortion that's kind of happening to see how do we get some of these things to market uh, with what we have. But I thought it was interesting to see, even to compare and contrast, because to your point, yeah, Andreessen Horowitz had their proposal they released around regulation and Coinbase, of course, proposing a brand new Alphabet Soup regulatory agency uh, here, which is the whole new thing of it out of left field. So uh, lots of activity as always. It's been quite a week, but yeah, Bitcoin uh, shooting up, and um, and I guess would love to hear from Balaji and bring in our yeah, guest. Yeah, who, uh, who in fact cut some of his teeth in Bitcoin at Coinbase. Proceed that as well, but yeah, Balaji, why don't why don't you join us? Come in here. Uh, great to see you. Um, you know, yeah. Look, this is one of our OG sessions. And so what we like to do is really just go from the start to the finish um, as, as, as best we can. Um, you've been in this space for a while. I've known you since I think probably 2013, 2014. I think you're a pretty significant factor in me getting into this space. What got you into it? What was the big aha moment uh, for you that this, this crypto, this Bitcoin thing was, was a big deal? Well, first, great to be here, uh, Michael. It's been you know, this is like a, an industry we've seen grow up, really not an industry, it's a sector, it's a transforming thing. It's like the internet. The internet is not simply an industry, it's, it's billions of people, it's much bigger than that. And I think crypto in the fullness of time will be, it's already at hundreds of millions. Yeah, you know, my interest in the area was sort of sparked starting after the 2008-2009 crisis, where in general, you know, one approach to management is management by exception. But one way of doing it is you only really get involved in something if it's breaking, right? If it's, if it's broke, fix it. And in 2004, Ben Bernanke had this article on the great moderation where essentially he contended, you know, we've, we've solved macroeconomic volatility. It's a thing of the past, no more great depressions, victory lap. And it was kind of an academic prose, but it's sort of like, you know, spike the football, that's all old news. Not the case. You know, the mortgage bubble that was blown up exploded, you know, basically three or four years later. And then the response were these bailouts, which were unpopular across the political spectrum, because no matter how you slice it, like having guys take risks and then get bailed out with the people's money doesn't seem right. Because of that, I was kind of interested in these lower level APIs of the financial system that I never really cared about before. I had heard Ron Paul talking about in the Fed and so on, and it just seemed kind of odd to me because I didn't really have a narrative or something to fit it into. And I was mostly focused on like meditating on mathematics and, and computer science and stats at that time. So, but after the 08, 09 crisis, I started to get much more interested in economics. And in particular, kind of came up with sort of like my own little pet theory of uh, how the true price of something is pricing is actually more important than people think. Point is, I was thinking about energy consumption and pricing and so on. And uh, you know, then uh, I don't remember the exact date, but you know, on my radar came Bitcoin, which had a totally different approach, which I think is awesome, and that also actually does tap into energy, you know, as, as the fundamental root of scarcity because you know the number of hashes and, and what have you. You know, at the time I was, I was working in genomics, I didn't know how much traction it would get and so on, but I was kind of monitoring it. And I think the thing that really convinced me, and I may be misremembering this, but I think the thing that really convinced me was the recovery from the crash of 2011. Because, you know, I think it dropped from like 32 to about like two bucks, 
-hmm. And very, 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 very few things recover from something like that. The fact that it crawled back over the course of 2012, and it was around like 10 bucks or so by the end of the year, that was fascinating to me. And it was around that time that I started you know, getting into cryptocurrency in a formal way. I taught a class at Stanford in late 2012, early 2013 called Startup Engineering and included Bitcoin in the class. In early 2013, the space was, was nothing. It was just something that people had written off in 2011. There wasn't a space. To my knowledge, there weren't any VC-backed companies. I think Roger Ver would be the only person who had funded anything. And it was really just two guys on, uh, I think, Bluxem Street. I can disclose that. It's in the old filings. Mm-hmm. They've now since gone remote. It was around that time, actually, that I met uh, Brian Armstrong and Fred Ursum back when it was just two guys in a, in a room. We became friends then, actually, before they ever got any funding from A6NZ and before I joined A6NZ. So our friendship actually predates that. Right. Um, really interesting to was, you know, first, the recovery of it. And second was, you know, this gave you root access as a programmer to the financial system. You know, Brian had been moving money around at Airbnb, uh, and he realized that international payments were not a solved problem, that it was something that Airbnb had to have all of these buffers of money to try to make payments look instant. You know, one way of thinking about that, I think a good analogy for how that works, people think that, you know, because fintech companies sort of look like web interfaces, PayPal and Stripe and so on, because they look like... Gmail or something like that, that the backend is also internet-based. A rough analogy, imagine, Michael, if uh, when I hit send to you on an email in Gmail, that behind the scenes, Google prints it out, puts it on a Pony Express, takes it cross country, scans it, and then shows it in your interface. Okay. And, but it seems electronic. Okay. That is roughly a good analogy for how fintech companies layer over like the legacy ACH backend. And uh, the thing is that that abstraction, of course, breaks down if a ton of money is sent or many things are sent very quickly, or you need the payments to get through. Okay, well, what if you don't have enough ponies? You know, to, just to dive into the analogy, because I think it's quite, mm-hmm. quite good, actually, in some ways. One thing that you cannot do in the email case, every email is non-fungible. It's unique. So you can't predict what email I'm going to send to you. But with the case of currency, what you could do is, you know, if all I was sending you was an email that said plus 10, plus 10 bucks or plus 100 bucks. You could hold a big bucket of currency in New York and one in SF or Asia, and then you could just subtract from me and credit to you, and then you'd have two Pony Express kind of transactions, the debit from me to the central actor and the credit from the central actor to you that would be pending, right? And so these are like the kinds of workarounds that you do, you know, you still do in the financial system that Bitcoin solved because you had root access, you know? And of course, it's something that's like the Unix of money. You can... Room-RF, your entire fortune, recursively delete it. Do you know what that is, Room-RF? I, I remember the expression, yeah, but did, why don't you explain it for our listeners? Yeah, so, so if, if you ever worked at the command line, you know, where you like type in commands, kind of like you know, Google, you type in like a, like a keyword and it does something, okay? You can instruct your computer in a similar way rather than a 2D user interface. It's a one-dimensional command line. You type in commands and it does something. And one command you can type in, I, don't try this at home, kids, <laughs> um, is... Uh, RM space dash RF, which means remove everything recursively force. It's like delete everything underneath this directory and force, meaning don't, don't complain to me. Don't tell me, are you sure, et cetera, right? Wow. And, uh, it's a doomsday command. Yeah. Now, now modern, yeah. Systems, modern systems often have some fail safe, which will stop you from actually doing it at the root level because you never want to do that. But it's often you, you run a program and by accident, it's doing this, for example, right? So the thing about that, though, is the power to be able to delete your whole hard drive is also the power to be able to copy the whole thing, clone it. Like The whole reason that Google and Facebook and others built their backends on Linux mm. as opposed to Windows is they had root control over the whole system. 
they could do industrial scale computing. They could make modifications to the system and it could become theirs. They could mold it and shape it. And in particular, Linux itself was a commons. Uh, you know, these fierce competitors of Google and Facebook nevertheless cooperated on Linux. Why? Because one party cannot deprive the other of their contributions to that commons. Mm-hmm. That's a fundamental economics that makes yeah. work, right? Okay. Let's, let's, let's break this down a little bit because I think yeah. what's, what's interesting here as well is these sort of processes by which, you know, new technologies emerge and uh, large, you know, usurpers emerge to wipe out the old regime. And then, you know, to your point, they can build it from scratch because they've got that sort of root uh, basis they can deal with. So Google, Facebook, everybody else comes in. Ironically, of course, now they become, whether it's in terms of software language or just rather the economics of the situation, the platform on which we are all now dependent. And this cycle, it's accelerated. But one of the great hopes of course, of decentralization is that we can build a model that essentially either accelerates that process or, or, or never really allows the big monopoly to emerge. Yeah, I mean, just wondering whether you can tie all that together in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the thing is that you can kind of do like a third order thing, right? There's the linear progress model of history. We're just kind of going up, right? Then there's sort of the cyclical thing, you know, you probably heard some variant of this, but like, Strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times, you know, hard to, right? And so that's like the cyclical thing where civilizations rise and fall. And then I have sort of a third view, which is kind of like a, like a helical view, where along some axes, it looks like we're coming back to the same place. You know, Microsoft was scrappy, disrupted IBM, then it became the big dog. Then Google disrupted Microsoft, it became the big dog. Then Facebook disrupted Google, it became the big dog. Now Facebook is a big dog, right? And so it looks like we're coming back to the same place. But you, you sort of spiral upwards on the z-axis, right? All progress is along the z-axis. So it's not mm-hmm. like you're not making progress. You're just kind of doing in this sort of corkscrew-ish a, yeah, yeah. fashion, right? And the only way to make money in business is unbundling and bundling. Seems right. contradictory. It's like, wait a second, you're the big unbundling decentralization guy. Why are you saying centralization or bundling is good? Yeah. Answer is, you have a CD, you unbundle it to MP3s. Then you rebundle right. them in playlists, right? You, you have a, a newspaper, you unbundle it into articles, and you rebundle them into Twitter feeds. Yeah. yeah, you have you know the banking system, and you unbundle it into crypto assets, and you rebundle that into various kinds of exchanges or portfolios or what have you. And the thing about this is, and this is I think the key of like the pragmatist structure and hierarchy is necessary for order, but it is also necessary to be able to dismantle an inefficient or tyrannical or self-interested you know hierarchy. But you kind of need both forces, right? right. You, you have to have a plan to build something better. You know, your legitimacy in taking down the old is a function of how much better the new is than the old. That separates the, the one who breaks rules in order to destroy from the one who breaks rules in order to build. You know, I think about this stuff a lot because new boss, same as the old boss. Well, you kind of have this cycle going and you're right that it's happening faster than before because yesterday's disruptor is today's incumbent. It is happening within five years, 10 years, because the internet trigger, the informational thing is so fast that you become a billionaire in like a few years. If you're successful, obviously, you know, obviously there's folks who have the opposite, you know, outcome, (laughs) a few, right? Uh, But at the same time, the organization suddenly slows down. It just, it just hits this wall. It's no longer the thing it was. It's, It's almost like hitting a block of gelatin. And now it's this ossified thing, right? The thing about this also is, um, it's actually, in a sense, good that success leads to contentment, leads to lack of efficiency, leads to what you want to call it parasites or people who glom on front runners, et cetera. 
because that means you, it's, it's almost like a nature's way of not making something too successful. Yeah, I suppose okay. you, you want to have it so that like it reaches like this optimal points. Friction, don't we call that friction? Right. You want some friction. You don't want like Nazism, right, to come up to merge out of all. You don't want like completely yeah. nihilistic, destructive things to emerge. Yeah. You certainly want some level of pushback that then forces us to seek change. Here's a question on that. You know, so yep. how much do you think that that quest for legitimacy was even part of these early days? I would say not so much. And I think when the average person looks at Bitcoin, for example, or if they go on crypto Twitter, God help them, you know, they kind of see uh, anarchy, chaos, you know, all in the frame of liberty and rights and whatnot. And so uh, talk to us about that structure. Like, what is the legitimacy that comes from these new crypto economic systems or governance that is better in your estimation than the legacy that they're looking to replace? So first is actually, I do think that each generation of compute in the post-war era did frame itself and was legitimately decentralizing relative. Do you know my thesis about peak centralization, Michael? Have you? Yeah, I remember that. Sure. Let me give it precise. So basically, there's a kind of a long form-ish version at sotonye.substack.com, sotonye.substack.com. If you just Google that plus Bology, you'll, you'll see it. But essentially, the idea is 1950 was peak centralization in the West. You had one telephone company, AT&T, and two superpowers, the US and USSR, and three TV stations, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And now we're kind of running history in reverse as Western states decentralize. So just to give some examples, as you go backwards from 1950, the Western frontier closes in 1890. As you go forwards from 1950, the internet frontier opens in 1991. Did you know that commerce used to be illegal on the internet? Yeah, I do remember that. Well, certainly to do with sales taxes, wasn't it? Yeah. So the internet, because it started as this academic military thing, like a, it was something where people said, hey, if you allow commerce on the internet, you're going to get spam and porn and malware. And you know what? They were completely right. They were you absolutely did. right. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you also got the modern commercial internet. That was the repeal of the so-called NSF acceptable use policy in 1991. It's a critical kind of year. 1991 is this really important turning point because you know communism failed, internet opened for commerce. You know, you can say that the 20th century was 1914 or 1917 to 1991, depending on how you count it, right? For like, Around the time that Andreessen would have just started developing Mosaic, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So it was a little few years later, but exactly. So I believe, I don't remember the exact episode. I remember, I remember seeing Mosaic in 993 when I, when I went to- Yeah, it was a few, was a few years later. I don't remember when he started developing it, but it came out, yeah. yeah. And so, so the thing is that the reason I analogize the Western frontier closing and the internet frontier opening is the concept of internet frontier, it's, it's more than a metaphor, especially now with VR you can actually really analogize a fresh new domain name to like a plot of land that you can build on in a way that you cannot build in the physical world. The reason that so much of our economy has gone to the internet is you need a billion permits to build a shed in San Francisco, but you can build a billion dollar business online with a few keystrokes, right? Maybe more than a few, but you know what I'm saying. So the fact is that it's possible to do that. You have complete root access to the land. There's no government or anybody else preventing you. And it's all externalities are for the most part limited to you know, what you're setting up and tearing down, and it's all opt-in, it has a lot of the benefits of Frontier without the disadvantage of, you know, for example, another group of people being there and, you know, fighting them. And so, so the thing is that that centralized century, but you go backwards in time, you get the Spanish flu, forwards in time, COVID-19. Backwards yeah. in time, you get the robber barons, forwards in time, tech billionaires. Backwards yeah. in time, the private banking era with private currencies, forwards in time, cryptocurrencies. Backwards in time, you have the state versus capitalists, you know, you have the collectivization, expropriation of property, the collisions of FDR with, you know, the malefactors of wealth, you know, the Soviet, you know, seizures of wealth. Forwards in time, you're starting at the state versus capitalist, China seizing companies effectively from its captains of industry, the US government with this, you know, whistleblower thing, trying to build a case to effectively 
you know, quasi-nationalized Facebook, in, I would argue a way that's sort of similar to what the Chinese are doing. And so what we're seeing is it's like a, a ball descending. Many of the same y-axis points, it's like at the same height, it's just on the way down. Many of the same kinds of collisions are happening, except with the opposite outcome. For example, with uh, you know, the Spanish flu, there was a rising centralized state and a public health establishment, but there was also public censorship. And so it was just sort of blotted from memory, and we didn't think of it as a big deal. It was only kind of rediscovered you know, during COVID. And uh, COVID is, you know, at the beginning of COVID, we didn't know how bad it was going to be. If you look at the deaths, you know, they're rising exponentially. We're lucky that it's going to be, quote, only about 10 million dead worldwide, assuming no mutation happens. Whereas mm-hmm. Spanish flu, you know, was like 100 million, right? I know that sounds very... But lucky, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's lucky. Basically, it's lucky in the sense of it's a disease that there's some mental model of it. You know, if you're older, if you are less fit, if you're not vaccinated now, you know, you're at higher risk, but there's measures you can take. You can lose weight, you can get the vaccine and so on and so forth. Versus something like the Spanish flu, which would just strike down people in their people youth, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like killing people in their healthy people in their 20s, we're very fortunate, very, very fortunate that this was not the virus from contagion, that this was not the Spanish flu. How does crypto fit into this? So with the cross of gold speech, William Jennings Bryan you know, was having a populist kind of movement against gold. And now with digital gold, we have a populist movement for gold. So many of those same collisions are happening with the opposite outcome. Okay. Mm. To your point about like the ethical aspect of this, when it's centralized, you want to decentralize. When it's decentralized, you want to centralize. Because when it's centralized, it's stuffy, it's hierarchical, I'm constrained, I'm confined, I'm conformist, it's homogeneous. You cramp in my style, man. And you know, there, there's this uh, book like The Organization Man, for example, that was just tweeted a few days ago about like mid-1950s American culture. You know, the US was just the least centralized of the massive centralized states of the 20th century. It was highly centralized though. Mm. Huge businesses, big businesses, big government. You're a company man. And it was also culturally centralized. It was very homogeneous. So it's interesting the extent to which we've gone to both let's call it the culturally progressive left and the economically libertarian right from mid-century is, you know, I think to an extent that's not fully appreciated because it's kind of happened gradually. You know, where we think things are coming from, you usually think of, you know, more taxes is, you know, one group and more children is another group. And that was kind of the same group. It was sort of like the opposite of fiscally conservative, socially liberal. It was fiscally, you know, liberal, socially conservative in a sense, right? And, and that was mid-century. And so the thing is that whenever you have too much of something, you want less of it. And then when you have too little of it, you want more of it. Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. Yeah, I take this point about, you know, when something is centralized, there's this push against it. But let's go back to kind of American history here and say, okay, but wasn't that in part because there was this contract of sorts that was being made with leaders, right? The idea was we're going to go about our businesses and our suburban lives and whatever it is we're doing. And you are going to do X, Y, and Z thing that are going to basically, you know, take care of our national security, this and that. And then you had events like the civil rights movement, you had Vietnam, you had things just really upset that social order. Now you could argue about what was the root cause of some of those things that happened, but some would say, I think fairly, that it was the, the result of decisions made by 
leaders, those who had been entrusted with power on behalf of you know, everybody else, uh, who made choices that were not popular with, among parts of the population who felt empowered as in, in groups or individually to kind of speak out about that. I wonder kind of, isn't there an element here where the, that trust, it, once broken, is very, very hard to repair? And I think we've seen that echo you know, that throughout uh, the last 30, 40 years of American history, if we kind of keep it local. And what does that say? And isn't, isn't this sort of rise of crypto potentially a reaction to the lack of trust engendered by 2008? And I would argue even earlier than that, but certainly 2008, you know, really was a massive wake up call that this system that people had kind of assumed was just trucking along. And yeah, we knew some people weren't doing so well, but a lot were doing fine. Suddenly it became really extremely clear that, you know, a lot of people weren't doing fine. Some people were doing really, really, really fine. And the system itself wasn't going so well. And so getting that trust back is something that's it's really hard to unwind. And then you kind of had an environment in which something like crypto could really take root. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? So what I think about that is that every new, you know, really important communications modality, several uh, new communications modalities, tear down trust in the existing system because mm-hmm. they allow the publication of facts that the old system was censoring that were you know, core to its legitimacy. So you know, what for comes example, first? Is the erosion of trust a predecessor and a predicate for the new system? Or is it that the new system brings about awareness of the reasons why you can't trust the old system? Or is it- Great question. Yeah, I mean, to first order, I do kind of subscribe to the concept that technology is a driving force of history. And that it's upstream of everything else. That all ideologies have existed. You go back and read Plato or you know something like that, and you can see some of the same types of things. But what changes is what's technologically feasible. So in the era of the centralized century, with mass production and mass media, and something where you needed lots of people to do anything, the ideologies that were selected for and that were feasible were ideologies like communism, Nazism, and democratic capitalism, and they slugged it out. And now today, in this decentralized era. Those ideologies of mass control are not selected for. Instead, you have ideologies that work on networks like wokeness or crypto. You know, these are things which transmit with likes and, and retweets and so on on Twitter. They are the total opposite of like a top down authoritarian thing. They are networked and kind of bottom up. And so the time selects for the ideology and, and the technology selects for the ideology. If you go back and you look at the Spanish flu, it was censored successfully. If you look at Katyn Forest, where the USSR killed a bunch of Poles and the Polish leadership, and then lied about it and occupied Poland through the Warsaw Pact for many years, it was covered up successfully. Many of these things that delegitimated the regime, or would have if they were put out in public, uh, you know, were covered up successfully. And now we have something that is similar to the printing press. With the printing press, Martin Luther was able to delegitimate the, the Catholic Church and say, hey, you guys are doing things like indulgences. And so this was something where a lot of people probably had a beef with it, but when he printed it and he shared it, there could be a new consensus that was outside the hub of the existing consensus. Hey, yeah, I think that is a problem. Yeah, that guy's got some, he's got some good ideas. That started the Reformation and it started like the holy wars of religion and the Reformation, the counter-Reformation and so on. The thing about this is if you know like Moses Naim's book, you know, The End of Power or uh, like Martin Gurry, like The Revolt of the Public, the, the fundamental thing that's happening is no regime is flawless. Okay. Mm-hmm. Given, you know, that saying like, find me a man, I will find you a crime. Right. Or like Cardinal Virgilio's thing, like, uh, give me three lines written by the most honest of men and I will find something in them to hang him. Right. Snowden also said this, you know, that 
there was turnkey tyranny. Given enough surveillance on somebody, you can take an innocent life and you can make it into something bad. It's absolutely impossible to manage large numbers of people, especially millions of people, without having some really unhappy people or some bad things happen. Kind of like, you know, because we've had discussions, you and I, I mean, I, my book, The Truth Machine, you've, you've obviously cited in some of this stuff because it's, you yes. know, it, it's some of the core ideas that, that we were working with. Like, you know, so basically, you know, Paul and I, Paul Wiener and I, we wrote that book, were trying to just make the case that this is a machine that brings the, the consensus is now something that can be more readily obtained from, from a wider group of organizations, that there is this capacity to recognize what a common notion of the that there is a shared truth that is important here, that it's not that there is an absolute truth, but a shared truth. I don't know that I, in the process, was advocating that there, there is some sort of like, there's a need to use this as the absolute machine for everything. But I do think that in the world of finance, in the world of, of decision-making around money, the idea that uh, we now have this collective capacity to, and that, that once that's agreed upon, that there is a consensus that more than 50%, you know, the 51% attack uh, are behind this idea, then we have a foundation to build upon that is not going to be forced down our throats by whichever the centralized power is, right? And, and that is such a powerful idea that, that I think you know, crypto really brings to the table here. It's why I think there is an ethos in this community of really just rebellion and, and refusing to accept the, the line of the sort of the centralized incumbent. I worry though, that it gets used and abused as a way to say, all right, there is no absolute truth. And so, you know, maybe the election was stolen. You know, we can't trust, you know, CNN and MSNBC and, and these <laughs> journalists because they are obviously constructing something. And that process is something that's got a hidden agenda behind it. I mean, I've just spent the past two days with this XRP army conspiracy theory thrown yeah. at me because apparently <laughs> when I interviewed Gary Gensler and Patrick Merck and Jerry Brito at an MIT conference. I somehow, we all had a hand in the Hinman deal between Jay Clayton and Gary Kensler, not to go after the theory, but to go right. after the theory. And it's just like, there is such an enormous army of, of that consensus, right? Of the XRP army consensus, and they yes. fly into it, right? And it's just, how do we grapple with this? Because you've got on the one hand, a machine that I think is really helps. The, I love the, the revolt of the public, this idea that we can actually sort of challenge these accepted wisdoms. And the, and, the, and the church analogy is a perfect one. For social organism, which I wrote with Ola Luck, it was actually all about this idea as well, right? Breaking down these centralized silos of informational control. And I think blockchains really give us a chance to approach that. On the other hand, you bring in this capacity for this sort of like common tribal truth, right? That is yeah. driven by a very narrow self-interest. And it, it, it is so noisy and so sort of self-absorbing, that it's hard to see how that is beneficial to society. I actually gave a talk on this a few months ago on the ledger of record, which is a play on words on distributed ledger and paper of record, where you know, our society, it purports to be based on science. Okay, And as an academic, I saw how the sausage is made. In the abstract, it's like there's some phenomenon, you study it, you write up a paper, it's peer-reviewed, it's published, it's then reported on by news outlets, and then it is used as input for regulation. That's like the assembly line. And the regulators will cite the pop article, and then if pressed, the scientific paper backing it, and that is, quote, based on science. Okay? Seems reasonable. The yeah. problem is that when the form and substance of science are mistaken, you know, conflated, the form of science is a peer-reviewed journal paper, et cetera. But the thing is, the substance, you know, it's not citation, it's independent replication. 
Un- unless this is like the same as a Martin Luther thing. It's like decentralizing that power. One of the issues that, that is happening now is you're seeing the equation of genuine science, like Maxwell's equations with quote science, which is like a paper that came out last week. Maxwell's mm. equations, you know, we're replicating them now just in this conversation. Every time you pick up the phone, there's been countless trillions and trillions of quadrillions, whatever, of independent replications of that. Whereas that study that came out last week might not even have its data set out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. It might not have its source code out there. And yet we're supposed to base large decisions on that. You know, essentially one of the big problems is you have something where the banks take risks with your money and then the people are supposed to bail them out or the politicians make promises and you know, then they don't keep their campaign promises. Or, and I'm going to poke a little bit here, not on you, Michael, because I love you and I love what you guys are doing. <laughs> journalists are in general, not Coindesk, I actually think Coindesk is quite good. But journalists as a group are actually trusted about as little as politicians are because they've been pushing themselves as like the priests that determine truth versus the show your work kind of thing. I think it's a fair criticism, by the way. I think, I think there's never nearly enough self-criticism from journalists. And I, in writing The Truth Machine, I was, in some respects, taking issue with the way that we go about these sort of uh, accepted truths, right? The Overton window concepts and so forth. However, I do think it's really important to point out that journalism has built into it this sort of professional standards that may or may not be, to the outside world, they seem crazy. Like, you must be paid for an advertiser has obviously bought you or, you're, or you know, Rupert Murdoch is funding you to do this and therefore you want to do such and such. And I don't think people fully understand what the feedback loop of control and peer pressure within the journalism profession actually is. It, it is for the most part, and it doesn't mean that there's not all sorts of breaches and, and there's all sorts of failures, but there is this sort of abiding standard that if you fail it, you're sort of out of the elite group. The check and balance are there. The most unsophisticated assessments, I'm not, I'm not saying yours are unsophisticated, but unsophisticated assessments of the media fail to recognize this internal cultural component to it that is actually completely independent of your proprietor or your advertisers. And it is something to do with this profession itself. It's not a my way or the highway view. It, it has this sort of standards basis to it in some way. As you know, I actually cite your book quite a lot. You know, and, I know. And I, and I, Thank and you for doing so. I just yeah, that's no, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful yeah. book because you and Paul, I think, in particular, what you did is you wrote a pop treatment of something years and years and years before people understood that, you know, that's that's really what Bitcoin is. It is a way for Democrat and Republican, Israeli and Palestinian, you know, a Chinese person, a Japanese person to agree on who has what BTC. Mm-hmm. Now the thing about this is when you're talking about something that's a trillion dollars. To have no dispute over who owns what BTC is an absolute miracle in terms of social technology. It is. It is, it is basically something where it's worth all the compute because people will, will fight conflicts over way less than a trillion dollars. You know, yeah. Like yeah. wars have been fought over much less than that. And the fact that that has been maintained and not just maintained for BTC, but now generalized to mm-hmm. all other assets, you know, and that's obviously happening. You know, Quintus has documented yep. that. That's going to be stocks and bonds and everything else. We still have this 20th century overhang where orange groves and stuff from the 1930s is being cited as what should be guidelines today. And look, I, I certainly believe in complying with every law if you have a gun to your head, but compliance is not submission. You work to change the law. You do everything that you can within the law to alter that. The thing about this is Larry Page, for example, he said, any law that's more than 50 years old, it has to be reexamined. That's like before the internet, right? Any law that's before the internet and cryptocurrency is going to get reexamined. Or it's just going to like collapse, you know, because it'll be like the Catholic Church, you know, uh, and then, you know, the, the Reformation just, you know, takes over in those territories. The Catholic Church actually did reform somewhat 
but also fought a war. And we're kind of in the middle of this counter decentralization. So, okay, coming back it up. still survives, which is remarkable, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 still there. <laughs> it's still there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Basically, very good example. The printing press plus Martin Luther led to the Reformation, led to the counter-Reformation, led to the religious wars of Europe, led to the peace of Westphalia, led to the modern nation state. Mm-hmm. And I think a similar kind of thing is, is about to happen where we have the internet plus cryptocurrency, the internet plus Satoshi Nakamoto mm-hmm. led to the decentralization, which is now leading to the counter decentralization, which we're in the middle of with the American government and the Chinese government trying to crack down, which is going to lead to, I think, the, you know, the, the coin conflicts, the numism conflicts, you know, numism as opposed to theism, mm-hmm. like the study mm-hmm. of coins, coin wars, you know, or what have you of the next few decades. Mm-hmm. And then question mark, question mark, question mark. And on the other side of it, I think we've rebundle into what I call network states. So the end of the Westphalia system, the collapse of the nation state, well, the form of network states. And so this is not geographical, it is a... So if the, if the 2000s were tech companies and the 2010s were crypto protocols, the 2020s are startup cities and the 2030s are network states. And you go ascend the ladder from company to currency to city to country. Now, the thing is that 10 years ago, if I'd said start a new currency, if anybody had said that, you know, prior to Satoshi, if you imagine walking into a VC or something with, with yeah. that, you, they look at you like you have three eyes, you're a complete lunatic. What are you going to do? Go to the IMF, the World Bank? Globo, you know, our very first episode. That's go right. Ahead. Yeah. No joke, around. <laughs> she was just referring to this thing as the Globo. This is like Globo. A, it's an art project that we had a guy with Nikki Enright on, and it was a very entertaining show about like, yeah, creating a currency from, you know, imagining a currency as an artist. But no, I think that's a really good point. Like, like I remember that was one of the reasons I got into it. I just was so bowled away by the idea that somebody sort of came up with the idea, the, the pure chutzpah to say, I'm going to create a new currency and then did so. From a guy who spent my life writing about the IMF and writing about like currencies and bonds, and I was just, wow, this is a big deal. So you're yeah, right. This is something I think we don't necessarily spend enough time on, right? Even on our show where we do talk a lot about what is money and what is not money and how does money come into being and how does currency come into being. But I mean, fundamentally, right? I mean, Satoshi Nakamoto, he or they or whomever, created a new currency. And, and, and I think that just to pause on that for a moment, I love what you just said, Michael. I mean, it's just, it's just the chutzpah to go about and do that, to think like this is a thing that needs to be done and can be done. And, and here's a particular problem that I'm going to try to solve. I'm going to use these known computational methods. And I'm going to use this new you know, things that have been emerging from various parts of the ecosystem and just put it out there. And the fact that it's proven to be robust over more than a decade is just unbelievably shocking and incredible. Yes. Really pause for a moment on that, you know, to think aside. The thing is that we're still close to the moment in history, but it really is something that's on par with the Declaration of Independence or the Communist Manifesto or the Bible or the, like, it is something that will like reverberate through history because it is not simply a technology like a, like a laser or something like that. Yeah. It implies something about the structure of human organization and society. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's a social and technology as much as anything it's else. The governance. Yes. It's the governance. Yes, it's yeah. exactly. And tying this to your original point, you know, Satoshi's fundamental breakthrough was the way to discover absolute truth in a time when trust was scarce, but computation was abundant to mm. turn the determination of absolute truth, at least on the metadata, okay, of who, like meaning digital signature, what digital signature did what via hash, when via timestamp, you can now get pretty good bounds on that, you know, in this box of like the probability that this digital signature was falsified, that this hash, you know, was a, it was a collision, that this 
timestamp, it's, you know, it's within this range. And you can compute how much energy would be required to falsify that, like how many hashes would need to be done to create a new chain. And that's like a totally new thing. It is access to absolute truth for everybody, which is absolutely worth all the computations, worth all the energy that goes into it. There's nothing that's more important than like humanity's history. You know, the thing about this is with Merkle trees, as you're aware, you can store arbitrary amounts of uh, at least the proof that something existed on the Bitcoin blockchain, even if the data itself is off the chain, right? So you could put at least, you know, something that verifies the library of Alexandria existed and, and not lose it. Okay. Yeah. So the thing is that this concept leads us to a new equilibrium for truth, but you can do better than mainstream, which is Satoshi Anon, way better than mainstream, 10,000 X, 100,000 X, a trillion X better than, than mainstream, which is absolute truth, cryptographic truth. And I think that's what we need to move to. We cannot have corporate truth. We need cryptographic truth. For example, the New York Times company literally runs billboards declaring itself the truth. You know, Fox News runs billboards calling itself fair and balanced. The Washington Post equates itself to democracy itself. These are privately held corporations. They, they are literally owned by families. You know, Salzberger, who owns the New York Times, inherited from his father's 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 father. And they go after like tech people and so on for how privileged. And this is like kind of the definition of like, a rich white privileged American who's trying to determine and say without any shame or self-awareness that they're determining truth for the whole world, that they are the paper of record. They run billboards declaring the, the truth and it's hard to find and so on, and we're determined to find it. And it's simply not operative anymore in a world where you have a billion Indians and a billion Chinese online. We have you know, like hundreds of millions of African people. The rest of the world has to have a say, and they also have to have a way to confirm these facts and not simply believe the WNDs are in rock or that Russiagate is true or that COVID isn't a risk until it is, or that masks don't work before they do. You know, like we need a way to, to see the work. Bitcoin actually gives that primitive that I think we need. Once you can get consensus on a few bytes or a single byte, even the debit for me and the credit to Michael of how much BTC we sent. I know it's not exactly a byte, how it's represented on chain, but just bear with me like a, like a, like a minus and a plus. That same thing can be extended to consensus on a series of bytes and an arbitrary data structure. Every proof of X and proof of Y, the Bitcoin blockchain gives you proof of who via the digital signature and proof of what via the hash and proof of when via the timestamp. But there's all these other proof of Xs, right? Like proof of solvency, you know, to see that somebody has the cash on hand. Every such proof allows you to put something on chain. We're not asking to take it on trust because the trust isn't there anymore. You are putting it into like literally a mathematical equation. The beauty is of Bitcoin and you know, other areas where we've now turned money itself into digital form is that you've now got native information that resides within that blockchain and therefore there is no need to trust anything but the math behind it. The extension of this, I think, is where it gets really interesting and challenging. Obviously, you know, even taking Bitcoin and putting it into a DeFi environment requires a wrapped Bitcoin, requires a trusting a BitGo node to mm -hmm. create that, that smart contract that sort of locks that. Remember how different the world is in 2020 versus 1990, mm -hmm. like how cheap it is to record things. You know, back in 1990, the, uh, the Unabomber was, you know, 1990-ish, he was killing people for the distribution. That is to say, a Washington Post op-ed was so scarce that he would literally blow people up for it. Now yeah. he would just go and yell at people on Twitter. Which actually gives you some. some he, needed these, he couldn't get the attention unless he killed somebody. Yeah, that, exactly. Like, that's a really that's, interesting analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's how scarce distribution was. That's a good mm. point. Yeah, and that is right? the church and the steeple going, you know, the, the, the flattening of the, of the broadcasting opportunity. Yeah. What I'm loving about this OG series, Michael, is just that there's so many different reasons people got into this space to begin with. And then what kept people in this space and kept them interested also is there's such high variance. It's just really fascinating to kind of hear 
the differences from people who all, there was a spark at the beginning. It was often, you know, similar convergence, certainly around the kinds of things that got people in the space to, at, at the very early days. But then, yeah, I, I just, I love hearing these, these journeys and what keeps people excited well, and what keeps them believing. Yeah. And, and the multitude of different perspectives that it brings yeah. on what the future might be, right? Which is actually confirming your point, Balaji. One thing I love about the present or, or maybe the future, as opposed to the past, is that I have access to just such a a greater variety of ideas. Like the, the the moments I go, I never thought of that before. I've never had that in anything more like I have in the crypto world, right? The volume of it. Volume of it, but just because it, it's constantly forcing you to think outside the box. And I think that's, for me, the biggest use case of crypto is literally the brain power and the sort of the mind share that it allows you to, to indulge in. Anyway, fascinating, ever enjoyable. I knew this would be fun. We didn't get to talk about what you're actually doing in Singapore, but anyway, it's great to chat to you from where you're there. Spending time between Singapore and India and really focused on Asia and of course crypto, but also like future technology. So great. That's, yeah. that's where my head's at. Lots of, lots of um, fun things happening there. All right. Well, all right. we'll leave it at that. Thank you Thank so you much, Raleigh. Thank you again, Sheila Warren. It's been a pleasure as always. And Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back next week with another edition of Money Reimagined. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank you. See you guys. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Balaji Srinivasan. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 